Welcome back to the Leverage Podcast. I'm Arya Mizell, and I have a special guest co-host along with a guest today. So our guest co-host today is Brittany Martinson. Hi, everyone. And Brittany is on the Leverage team, and she brought to my attention the work of our guest today. I have to use his own tagline because it's pretty fantastic, but he's the man with the admin password to the human. And I'm talking about Chase Hughes of Ellipsis Behavior. So, Chase, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. So I, my goal, I guess, in this in this interview is to figure out a way to lie to you. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So as I said, it, on his website, he said it's, it's the admin password to the human, which I think is one of the best taglines I've ever heard. And then just to give some more context, it says, what would you do if you could see through social masks and expose everyone you meet? So we're talking about reading human behavior, social behavior, and body language, and sort of, I guess, exposing deception and all sorts of things along those lines. So if you could just give some background, like how did you get into this kind of work? When I was probably uh, 19 or 20, I was a pretty typical teenager, just kind of a, a falling forward and uh, kind of thought I had everything together. And I remember uh, one evening, my friends and I were out on the town and some girl had turned me down in the bar or something like that happened. And my friends are asking me uh, why I didn't ask her out or why I didn't, you know, keep pushing. And I, I had no idea what I was doing. And my friends sounded like they knew what they were talking about. So I went home that night and I Googled uh, how to tell when girls like you. And I think I printed out hundreds of pages and I stayed at home for several weeks just reading everything I possibly could. And it, it became addicting once I got really good at kind of seeing through people's mask and really, really getting good at, at reading nonverbal behavior. That level of kind of human x-ray vision is is really addicting. How are your pickup skills these days? I would say they would probably be okay if they were put to the test. <laughs> One of my favorite things about your book is your use of analogies and going into kind of what you just touched on, this facade or mask that we put on. Could you explain to the listeners the castle analogy and about approaching the castle grounds? And for you personally, when you are thinking about your own castle, do you spend your energy trying to break down the walls and become your more authentic or building up your walls and making your mask stronger? How do you use the information that you have? That is a great question, Brittany. And I think uh, just to explain the castle analogy first, in the book, I talked about our minds are similar to a castle and that we have our conscious mind, which kind of screens everything before we accept it as being truthful or just kind of adopting a new belief system or a new idea. We have these guys that stand guard on the outside of the castle. And when those guards are looking the other way, and that's there's a whole lot of methods to get that to happen. Um, you can kind of sneak ideas past the guards and get them into the castle. And then once you're inside the castle, um, your behavior still has to be really regulated as to what you say and what you do, because there's people living inside that castle. And if you start acting really weird, they're going to all start to notice and the guards are going to come after you. So that was kind of our analogy for the, the conscious versus the unconscious mind and how a lot of us use our conscious mind as kind of a guard. And that's one of the, the, the faults, I think, in most people, probably everyone, is that we think there's some kind of a firewall 
or some kind of virus protection program that's going to prevent us from being severely manipulated. And it's so strong that we will backwards rationalize almost all of our decisions to being our own choice. So if you ask why someone purchased something, they're always going to give you the explanation that I made a decision to do this. You'll never hear somebody say, well, I was heavily influenced by this advertising campaign and there was a girl on the commercial and I thought maybe if I get this, that girls will like me more. When in all reality, that's typically what's going on in the subconscious. And I think as far as my own castle is concerned, uh, I definitely try to live every day with no walls whatsoever. I try to be really vulnerable and, and really authentic, not as a manipulation tactic, but it's a better way to live. I don't get headaches. I don't have to worry about anything because uh, if you're honest all the time, and you're just really open and vulnerable. You have very little to worry about and you're not really scared of social interaction uh, like most people are. It seems kind of like after reading the book, when we're vulnerable in society, it seems like we're more susceptible to people programming us or open to suggestion. And yet, as I've been practicing, the more vulnerable I've become, the more I feel in control because I am mindful. Absolutely. And, and that is a point I wish that I had made in the book. And I've noticed the exact same thing. And that when you start to let go, um, you're a lot more open to what's going on. You're less easily distracted. And especially uh, with your uh, case, having read the book, you're, the guards at the front of your castle have more training to allow you to relax. Yeah, to pause between the stimulus and the response. Is it hard for you to let your guard down with people? Uh, for me personally, it's absolutely not hard. That's typically one of the ways that I am able to function every day, and especially in, in my type of work. I definitely am fully open all the time. And I think that's the best way to persuade others. I think it's the best way to live, period, if you're talking from like a Zen, kind of a, a Buddhist mentality of just surrendering to what's going on. And I think that authenticity gives you that ability to focus in more clearly on the conversation. So you're living in front of your eyes instead of behind your eyes all the time. So do you think that emotions, fears, feelings, and weaknesses still govern your decisions and behavior? Absolutely. And I think no matter how authentic uh, a person is, we are all suffering so much that seeing the way that someone hides their suffering is usually one of the most powerful and revealing things that you can see in another person. And seeing this information, while at first it might make someone with a large ego feel powerful, I think once you're able to see through people, it's humbling just because it, it says, instead of I'm better than this person because they are suffering, it's this person is just like me. And I think it's empowering uh, that when you first start to read people and when you get really good at decoding body language and hearing human needs and uh, teach people how to see insecurities in the book, it's not a power play. And it, it starts to become something to where you see everyone as just like you. And originally, when you might have thought a person looks intimidating or seems intimidating just by their behavior or their physical appearance, once you can see all of their fears and weaknesses they become human. And I think the ability to read people really humanizes people around you. Let's dive into a little bit how we can do that. So authenticity is one tool, but you talk about a plethora of tools in your book of 
both reading, understanding, and then I don't want to use the word manipulating, but suggestion to other people. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to talk a little bit about some of the tools that you use and what if somebody were to pick up your book and read it, they could get out of it. Sure. The book covers uh, how to read people so you can read them during a persuasion or influence scenario. So basically, the book teaches how to enhance compliance in people. And one of the the things that as I was doing the research for the book, the thing that really made me stop and pay complete attention to it was this experiment that was done in the 60s by Dr. Stanley Milgram, who's at uh, Yale University. And this is called the obedience experiment. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, you did talk about it in your book. It's fantastic in a lot of regards. And I'll get into some of the more hidden aspects of that here. So basically, the experiment is, um, say you volunteered for a psychological study or a psychological experiment at a university. You walk in there. You, It's you and another person. Uh, you draw names out of a hat. One of you is the learner and one of you is the teacher, except... Uh, The other guy who's the other volunteer is not a volunteer. He's a conspirator. In the experiment, the other guy gets taken into a room and you stand there and you watch him get strapped to all these electrodes that are going to shock him. And then you go into another room, which is right next to it. So an adjacent room. Uh, They sit you down at this little desk with a shocking machine in front of you that's going to shock this guy in the other room. So you've got to read these pairs of words and they're just random words. So there's pairs of or uh, sets of four words. And if the guy on the other side of the room or on the other room does not read them back correctly, you're supposed to deliver an electric shock. And this whole time, there's a guy in a lab coat in the room with you holding a clipboard, just kind of observing what's going on. And sure enough, the guy who is not a volunteer gets these words wrong and you have to start delivering these shocks. And it goes from a very low voltage all the way over 400 volts to where it has a skull and crossbones on it or XXX, depending on which experiment you look at. And a lot of people started getting queasy about it because the guy in the other room starts screaming, saying he wants to get out. I'm done with this. That hurts. I have a heart condition. And the guy in the lab coat, uh, as soon as these people start expressing any kind of reaction against the, the guy getting hurt in the other room, the guy in the lab coat just says, a few stock phrases that they had come up with for this experiment. And some of those are, it's important that you continue. The experiment requires that you continue. Please continue. So just basic phrases like that. So no one's being forced. So before this experiment took place, all of these psychologists and psychotherapists and psychiatrists got together to evaluate the, the veracity of whether or not this study would produce any kind of viable information. And they predicted 0.01% would shock the other person to the point of death, which is listed as XXX on this shocking machine. And about 80% went up to that level. Basically, Milgram was trying to prove that people uh, during World War II, the Nazis who said they were just following orders at these um, death camps that they had running, um, his parents were refugees. And they were Jewish. And he was trying to prove that that the people really were just following orders. And it's there's a lot to be taken out of this. And like how we every one of us, if we were interviewed today, 100 percent of us are going to say, no, I would never shock another person to death. I would never do it. And we would be completely uh, vehement about it. We would uh, shout it from the rooftops. 
However, all of those people who would swear up and down that they would never kill another person or shock another person to death, um, almost 80% of them did it, uh, all the way up to killing another person. And one of the big takeaways from this experiment for me was not that uh, somebody was following orders in World War II or what people are willing to do, but that a guy in a lab coat with no training in hypnosis or influence or persuasion or any of these tactics, just a dude in a lab coat without even a name tag on, was able to tell another person to commit murder. And in less than half an hour, with no influence capability, no influence training, this guy convinces another person to commit murder. Wasn't that also recreated with a puppy? So they recreated the study with a puppy because people thought the person being electrocuted was just faking? Yes. And they, they've redone it with several animals. I think it's been duplicated 129 times uh, since the original experiment in several countries. Chase, was it because he was wearing a lab coat? Was it because of the stock phrases? I mean, obviously there's a combination, I'm sure, but what, what has the biggest impact, I guess, semblance of authority? Awesome question. Yes. So authority plays the major role in what we do and how we govern ourselves. That's why we have celebrities uh, advertising for shampoo and things like that on television. And authority is different than perceived authority. But in the brain, there is no difference. So real authority would be like you get pulled over by a police officer. Perceived authority would be like you run into a guy in the store and he's wearing scrubs and he's got a stethoscope around his neck and he asks if he can cut in front of you in line. That's perceived authority just from what we see. That's just seeing a uniform. So this lab coat and being in this laboratory environment with this guy, we tend to assign authority mentally to people that are in typical authority positions, even if it's just what they're wearing. So things like a really sharp looking business suit, a lab coat, uh, somebody who's walking around in plain clothes, but has like a medical pager on them, a security officer's uniform. So we tend to assign authority where there is no authority there. I used to work in construction when I was younger, and I, I always felt like I could get into pretty much any building I wanted by carrying a rolled up uh, architectural plan set. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've seen a video just within the last uh, month or two uh, where these construction workers just carry a ladder to see if they can get into any restaurant and all these clubs and stuff like that. So they just walk right in with a ladder and they're, they're in. It's fantastic. But one of the things that was big on uh, authority is that uh, when you teach authority, you can't just tell people that, hey, go buy a lab coat and wear it around town. That's ridiculous. So we wanted to distill the qualities uh, that make up perceived authority. So when you have X, Y, and Z qualities, that automatically triggers the authority response. And we'll talk about those in a second. But when we're triggered by an authority figure, we go into what Dr. Milgram calls an agentic state to where you're acting as an agent. That's where the word comes from. So he calls this the agentic shift. So as soon as we're in front of somebody with enough authority even if it's just some dude in a lab coat, we undergo this shift in our heads to where we are acting no longer of our own responsibility. We are acting on behalf of someone else. So the feeling of responsibility for making decisions and assuming uh, responsibility for our actions goes away. It just disintegrates as soon as we are in the presence of someone who triggers those authority centers in our brain. It shifts us into an agentic state to where we're acting as an agent. Will you go into the five 
aspects of authority and then also how those were determined? Absolutely. So the five aspects of authority are the five five behaviors or character traits that trigger authority mechanisms in the human brain are dominance, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and fun. So with those five things, uh, we'll go through them a little bit. Uh, dominance is just being completely in control of your environment, not being domineering, not being over anyone, not feeling superior to anyone, or not trying to make anyone feel inferior around you. Then you have discipline. And discipline is one of the critical factors, and I think it's the hardest one to develop. Because I get students uh, that call me up all the time, or I'll do a face-to-face interview with uh, somebody who's wanting to do some extreme uh, level of persuasion who might work for uh, the government and he has a job where it's critical. And I can tell uh, within the first five minutes of the interview that this guy uh, has come to me and he wants to learn how to control other human beings and he can't even make his bed or doesn't have the discipline to get out of bed early and work out or he's got a giant pile of dishes sitting in a sink at home. And that is palpable to lots of people, especially women, that, uh, Brittany, I'm sure you've had a, a conversation before where everything looked right on the outside, but something just felt off and you could not explain it. <laughs> All the time. Okay. So that's that's a perfect example of how someone who's lacking in self-discipline or their leadership or dominance, everything can look great on the outside. And a lot of websites and books will try to teach you how to look confident, how to dress confident, but you can get all the suits you want in the world. And if you can't just make your bed in the morning, you're not going to control another person. You're not going to have that actual authority. And a lot of these uh, books that are out there nowadays just kind of teach you how to fake it. And it's disingenuous to begin with. And on the second part of that is that people can feel the difference. They may not be trained profilers, but they know that something is off. The human brain is pretty smart. So those castle guards, they don't know what's wrong, but they know that something is wrong. So that part of authority, that self-discipline is a critical factor in dealing with other people and having that authority to push another person into the agentic state. And when we talk about leadership, This is only having a, so if you take your self-discipline and make it contagious, that is leadership, contagious self-discipline. And fun is just having a sense of adventure. And the only one of those that can be kind of substituted is the dominance, which was the first of the five. And that is hard for some people. And that can be substituted with somebody who doesn't have dominance can have ambition. So it could be ambition in place of dominance. And then there's gratitude, which, by the way, I'm very grateful that you're here today. And reading your book was one of the most humbling experiences of my human existence. And I think going through these is exactly why I loved it. It made me a better person and more so than giving me the tools to manipulate other people, which I might get if I keep practicing. But at its core, it made me a better version of myself. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. I uh, definitely on the on the gratitude part, um, I would say that I was sitting with my mentor one time. We were eating at a, a really fancy restaurant called Taco Bell. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. So we were sitting here. As we we're sitting there, I was talking about gratitude. 
And he said, gratitude is the ability to have two things at the same time in your mind. So sitting here at Taco Bell, being grateful for the guy who made the marketing decision to spend $5 million to test, taste test all of these different tacos to figure out which one's the right one. And the farmer and his family who grew this lettuce that's inside of your taco and holding the big picture and the small picture gratitude at the same time is one of the things that really changed it for me. Instead of just keeping a gratitude journal or keeping something down to where writing it down during the day and getting reminders on my phone, reminding myself to keep big picture and small picture uh, gratitude in mind at the same time starts for me started to make it more automatic i mean i I think that the guy who came up with the oreo churros probably deserves some accolades as well (laughs) i agree uh Brittany, we have time for you to ask one more question and then i have a last question so do you have one more my god i think i have seven okay well um i would like to talk a little bit about the body engineering aspect and um this is probably more than one question wrapped up into one question so pick and choose what you want to answer. But I've seen you say a couple of times and I've read that we shouldn't figure out what people are good at. We should figure out what they want to be seen as good at and we will get 10 times the results. So how do we figure out what they want to be seen as good at? And once we have that information, what do we do with it? Brilliant. I'll kind of summarize this. So I would say that the way to figure out what someone wants to be seen as being good at is Start asking them questions and just talk to them with normal conversations and get interested in other people's lives. And this is especially true for CEOs or people who have a large number of subordinates. Having those deeper conversations will expose all of these needs. And I say expose, and I don't mean that in a negative way. And when a person starts giving you talks about the accolades they've received, the accomplishments Or when you see a person's face light up, you instantly know what they need to be appreciated for or what they they need some kind of approval for some certain thing. If I have a guy who is really great at working Excel spreadsheets and have a guy who prides himself on working Excel spreadsheets, I would hand him the guy who prides himself on it the job over the guy who's really good at it because I know he will want to get it figured out more than the guy who's good at it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I think as a, as a manager, a boss, or even as a father, um, figuring out what your kids want to be appreciated for instead of what they're just what they're good at. And of course, that's worthy of accolades uh, on its own. I would say try to discover what people need to be appreciated for. So just ask yourself the question, what do you think or what kind of compliments do their friends give this person? to make them feel really good. The last question that we always like to ask in these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. I would say first, just covering what Brittany was talking about. You want to listen closely when other people talk. I teach all the way from profiling body language to creating a real life Manchurian candidate. Um, But I would say focus on human needs. And for anybody that uh, wants to read up on the human needs that are affected through um, behavior engineering or behavior profiling, I've got them all. I will send you the link. Uh, It's on my website. It's just ellipsisbehavior.com slash leverage. Uh, So you guys can download that in high resolution and the body language profiling chart, which we call the behavioral table of elements, uh, also in high resolution for your listeners. 
but I would say listen for needs in conversations because not only are people telling you about their vacation that they just took or a trip they just took, they are exposing all kinds of information about their personal life, not that you can use to their detriment, but things that will really connect you to another person and, and not just be an asshole. And I'm, I really encourage people to to listen with their eyes as well. So during the conversation, you see somebody's eyes light up, make a note of what they were talking about and ask them about it next time you talk. Start to connect with other people. And second, on top of that, I would say talk to strangers whenever you can and find out information about strangers. Uh, even if it's as simple as you're standing in line at Starbucks in the morning and you say, hey, hey, do you have an iPhone? Do you know how to do this uh, setting here to where I can edit this photo or whatever? Just a small conversation started to get to know somebody because uh, I live in a semi-large uh, city. I live in Virginia Beach. It's amazing that people don't get to know their neighbors, uh, much less talk to people out in the stores and stuff like that. But even neighbors, people living on the same street, don't really talk to each other. And I would definitely encourage you guys to do that. Start to see suffering uh, in other people because how we hide our suffering usually goes back to our needs and our fears. Every human being that you will meet is suffering in one way or another. It's it's a universal condition. And if you start to see it, the whole world uh, looks very, very different. And lastly, for anybody that is uh, studying uh, deception or lie detection, uh, if you download, the, it's completely free. I'm not going to sign you up for a newsletter or anything. If you download uh, the Behavioral Table of Elements, uh, which is free to download online, um, I would use uh, Conan O'Brien videos. So where, where Conan O'Brien interviews celebrity, he's got a knack for producing uh, stress behavior in his guests. And I think that's a result of his authority. Um, but that will definitely give you a really good idea of where to start when you're learning lie detection. You're going to start to see those stress signals a lot easier. Those are awesome tips. And thank you for offering to share that with the audience. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can Google Chase Hughes. I'm at the Chase Hughes on Twitter. And our website is ellipsisbehavior.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chase. Absolutely. Want to create more positive leverage in your life? Visit www.getleverage.com to access additional interviews, our blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every week.